We shall turn now to the consideration of the Word of God, the final chapter of the book of the Revelation and the final chapter of the canon of Scripture itself. Revelation chapter 22, we may read from verse 14 just now. Revelation 22, verse 14. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. And you will see the benediction here, the beatitude that is here promised to them that do God's commandments that they might have right to the tree of life. And we are taken in our minds right away back to the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, where God drove our first parents out of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword was then to stand between them and the tree of life, forbidding any access to the tree of life. And yet here we come to see that there now is access to that very tree. And uh, those that have access are blessed, but they have access by a particular way into these blessings that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city. Now we have, in the previous chapter, been given uh, insight into the city. It is not to be considered as a literal material city. It is the Lamb's wife depicted as a city. The church, in fact, depicted as a city, a strong city, a city that is secure, a city built upon 12 foundations and the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb are inscribed in those foundations. It is a city uh, with its gates open every hour of the day, contrary to what we would expect of cities that John would have known about, the whole idea of the walls of a city was to protect it from its enemies, to, to secure its inhabitants, and the gates were closed at night, and that was to further protect its citizens and to keep out its enemies uh, or any undesirables. Here is a remarkable city. There is no need. It is so secure. It is so safe. There is no need to close its gates. They are open day and night. But then the gates are described in a most peculiar way. Each of the uh, gates, we are told, was a peril. And uh, we noted in passing in the past that this is the only way into the blessings of the new Jerusalem, the blessings that belong to the bride of Christ. It is through himself who said, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall be saved. It is quite interesting, of course, that amongst all the jewels, and uh, there are multitudes of them that are highly valued and sought after, that the peril is unique in that it is the result of pain and suffering. Uh, when oysters, the pearl oysters, when they're uh, brought up, uh, from the bed of the sea, not all oysters have a pearl, of course. But those that do have, that pearl began as an irritation 
a little speck of sand, a little piece of grit that irritated the oyster and caused it pee and even disease. And the substance that is normally used, of course, to produce the shell of the oyster, then it is directed to cover that little piece of grit to take away the pain and the irritation, but in the process it produces these valuable pearls. And how interesting it is then to see that the gates of this city are so described. Because Christ is the pearl of great price. And his beauty and his grace shines forth in his own suffering. And it is the suffering Christ who makes way into the blessings of the covenant and the great blessings of redemption. And if we do not come through a crucified suffering Christ who made atonement for sin, if we are not prepared to come that way into the city to be part of the bride of Christ, then we cannot enter and we remain with those who are without. But here uh, we have at the end of this chapter, the end of this book, our attention once again focused upon the subject of this book of the Revelation as we've tried to emphasize it all along. You ask many people today, what is the book of the Revelation about? And you can be sure they're going to, normally they will mention the millennium. That's what it's all about. Or the second coming. That's what the book is all about. That is why there is so much controversy because so many miss the real heart of the book. And it begins and it ends in the same place with the same person. Go back again to chapter 1. And what do we read? The opening words, the revelation. The revelation, before we even think of anything else, it's the revelation. It is revealing something important. It is uh, the word revelation really means the unveiling. The unveiling of Jesus Christ, not the unveiling of the future, not the unveiling of uh, the second coming only or anything related to it, but the actual unveiling of Jesus Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what the book is all about. It's all about him. And this book is all a book of divine gospel, no matter what people try to say or think. And however they distort things and however they twist things, Christ is the gospel, Christ is at the heart of the gospel, and this is a glorious revelation or unveiling of the Redeemer Himself, And if people say they don't hear the gospel and revelation, well, there's something seriously wrong. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Where does it come from? Who gives it? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave. It is absolutely accurate. It is God's revelation, God unveiling to the church, to his people, his beloved son, the savior of sinners. Now when we 
read from verse 3 of chapter 1. We read these words, Blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear the words of this prophecy, and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And uh, John is therefore made aware that what is being revealed is being revealed from the time uh, that he actually was alive, the unveiling of a glorified Christ, not a Christ coming into the world so much to be born, not the Christ who would minister among men so much, not the Christ who would be crucified and buried, but this is the enthroned Christ. God's revelation of the enthroned Christ. Now you can imagine the disciples who had accompanied the Savior throughout his earthly ministry. He taught them, he instructed them. And yet there were many things they couldn't understand and many things that were just simply hidden from them. But Christ promised the Holy Spirit would guide them in the future into the truth and would enable them to recall the things that he said to them. But they had last seen him ascend out of their presence to ascend into heaven, and they saw him no more. He disappeared out of view. Now what are they to know? Can they pierce into heaven? Can they have a sight beyond what normal men can have somehow or other to see the ascended Christ now, where he is, what he is doing, how he appears, and so on? That's all hidden from them. But this is the revelation of Jesus Christ Where he is, he's gone out of sight. He has left his disciples, he's left his church in this world. But what is he now doing? How are they to know? Well, God wants them to know. God wants the church to know what is happening, what his exalted son is now doing. A revelation, an unveiling of what he is doing and his activities on behalf of his church. And this is what we have here in this uh, book. Now, when we come to the final chapters, we have the blessings of the covenant now fully experienced fully appreciated and experienced by those who have entered into the city, those who have come by faith in Jesus Christ to be part of Christ's bride. Now, there are four things that we might just consider by way of summing up what we have been looking at over uh, many weeks. And uh, first of all, we may consider the church as preserved by Christ. It is all his doing. What is he doing? He's preserving and he's protecting and keeping his church. And then the second thing we may note is the church triumphant in and through Christ. Uh, We don't come to the end of the canon of Scripture in spite of every opposition that has been mounted against the church. We don't come at the end of this book to view an embattered, an embattled church. We come to see the church in triumph, beautiful, adorned as a bride, For her husband, it's as though she's never even been through any war. She is so beautified 
and she is so glorified. The third thing that we may <coughs> notice enabled is the church united and with uh, Christ, united in and with Christ. What a marvelous sight. Every last redeemed saint is now in this city and secure and safe within it. And then lastly, the church as sanctified by Christ. This is all his doing. This is what he is doing throughout this record in the Revelation. Now, uh, we may consider what is stated, or at least some of it, in regard to the preservation of the church. We go back to the seven churches, and we see the state and the condition, and as we said at the beginning, John must have thought, how are these churches ever going to survive? What can the future hold? Look at the state of them. You just imagine, if you'd have been around in John's time, you were living somewhere in Asia, and you're thinking, well, I want to join a church in Asia. I want to be part of Christ's witness in this generation. And you begin to look for all the information you can find about these churches. And the first church that you learn about is the church in Ephesus. And you think to yourself, well, I'll go to the Acts of the Apostles and I'll learn about the establishment of the church in Ephesus. And you learn about how diligently Paul ministered and taught from house to house. It's a, an established church. It has got elders. It has got order. It has got discipline. My, you would think, well, I think that would be a good church to settle in. And then you learn from John what the head of the church, not what Paul, not what an apostle, not an elder in the church in Ephesus, but what the head of the church himself has to say. You meet someone from Ephesus and you say, could you tell me something about the condition, the spiritual condition of the church in Ephesus? And they tell you what they think, and it sounds pretty encouraging and pretty good. And then you hear through John what the very head of the church himself has to say. And in chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4, we read these words, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee. And you think to yourself, well, if Christ has got something against the church in Ephesus, I don't think I'm going to be going there. I don't think I'm going to seek membership in the church in Ephesus. So we will have to inquire about some other church. And maybe then we go over and we ask and we inquire about the church in Pergamos. And maybe the report is encouraging. And then again we come to hear from the head of the church himself. The one whose eyes, we are told, pierces and sees everything. And we think to ourselves, well, there's no more accurate information available on the church in Pergamos. So here I am going to listen carefully Verse 14 of chapter 2. 
But I have few, a few things against thee. Now, wouldn't that be quite serious? If the head of the church says, I have a few things against thee, I'm not approving, I'm in disagreement, I find fault, and so on, and then we decide, well, we better not go there. We don't want to join with those that the head of the church has got a problem with. And then maybe we think, well, what about the church in Thyatira? Maybe it would do. We learn everything we can about the church in Thyatira, and then we again hear the verdict of the head of the church, verse 20 of chapter 2, notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee. We'd be thinking to ourselves by now, I'm not going to be able to find a perfect church anywhere. Where am I going to put my roots down? Everywhere I go, if they're not uh, wrong in that, they're wrong somewhere else. If the Lord is approving of this, well, he's disapproving of that. Where are we going to go? Then we perhaps think, well, what about the church in Sardis? And again, we're told in verse 2 of chapter 3, I have not found thy works perfect before God. Well, if you're looking for the perfect church, then we'll have to leave Sardis out. And you can go through the churches and see that the head of the church is disapproving of some of the teaching, disapproving of some of the practices, and he is making it known that he does so. Now, what is John then, what is John to think as he writes this revelation? How are these churches ever going to survive? How are they ever going to maintain their witness? Remember what Matthew records, the Savior's promise, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And yet when you look at the record and the, uh, the description of the seven churches, it seems the devil does prevail. You look at the state of what is taking place, the intrusion of the world, the intrusion of false teaching and false practice and so on, John does not give us a description of a perfect church. He does not give to us a description of the church wherein everything is approved of by the head of the church. But one of the things that he does tell us, and it does indeed focus our minds upon the love and the affection of Christ for the church. He loved the church, and he gave himself for it. Now, although he is saying these things, I have somewhat against thee. I have not found thy works perfect. <coughs> Yet where is he? Does he remove himself? Does he stand afar off? Does he look on with Criticism? Not at all. Come back to chapter 1. And uh, what do we read at the end of the chapter? Verse 19, Write the things which thou hast seen, and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The mystery of the seven stars which thou sawest in my right hand, and the seven golden candlesticks, the seven 
stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven candlesticks which thou sawest are the seven churches. Seven candlesticks are the seven churches. They are light bearers. But if we go back in the chapter, this is the remarkable thing about these seven golden candlesticks. These seven churches with their flaws and their feelings and their errors and so on. Verse 12 of chapter 1, I turn to see the voice that speak with me. And being turned, <coughs> I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot and girded about the paps with a golden girdle. How remarkable. In the midst of the seven golden candlesticks is the Redeemer himself. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave. The unveiling that God gives us of his Son. Glorious Redeemer, loving the church, giving himself for it, now walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, aware of everything that he says about them. It's all true. He is calling on them to repent. He is giving them time to repent. He is calling on them to reform. And yet still he walks in the midst. He doesn't wait until they've got everything reformed, until they've everything perfected. He walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks. How remarkable. Now this is what this book is about. Christ walking among his people, Christ protecting, Christ keeping and preserving his church, even in spite of its own flaws and weaknesses, in spite of its blemishes, he still walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks. He doesn't desert the church. He doesn't abandon it because of its imperfections. He doesn't uh, leave it to its own devices because of its problems. He walks in the midst of the golden candlesticks. And he doesn't just sit in the midst. He doesn't just stand in the midst. He walks in the midst. He is active walking among his people, walking in the midst of the church. And that's what God wants the church to know. They might at times, the the Lord's people might at times become tempted to believe, well, God in Christ is forsaking His cause because things are so low or the days are so dark or because there is this and there is that and there's the other thing wrong. The revelation which God gave. And what does God give? A sight of the exalted Christ walking among his people just as he walked with his disciples. So he walks with his people. Did he ever rebuke his disciples? Of course he did. Did he ever rebuke them strongly? Of course he did. Didn't he speak to Simon Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. 
What a strong, strong rebuke. And yet he never forsook Peter when in his darkest hour Peter is going to weep with a broken heart. He will remember the words that the Lord has spoken to him. And what words has he spoken to him? I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And Christ walks in the midst of his people and he prays for that people. He prays for that church. Yes, he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks even though there is chaff mingled and tares mingled with the wheat. Still he walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. And this book of the Revelation, when we come to the end of it, we come to this glorious sight. The church has been kept, and the church is now presented by the Lamb to himself as a church without spot and without blemish. What a scene, the seven churches. They're all perfected now. They're all glorified now. Everything that is dishonoring to God has been removed and taken out of the way. And now the church appears as we read in chapter 21, the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Did she make herself this way? Did she somehow or other improve herself? She has been kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the uh, Revelation, or or Ephesians, I should say, chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 2, and there in the verse 20, Paul the Apostle tells us of the foundation, the foundation of this church that Christ was going to build. Now, when he would build it, He would build it upon a foundation. And we're told, or Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, that the church, including the Ephesian believers, was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Now, what kind of a foundation is this? Foundation of the apostles and prophets. Can we find perfection in any of the apostles or any of the prophets? Do you think you could build a secure and a stable church upon Peter, upon uh, others of the apostles, the sons of thunder, Or a Thomas, who's filled with doubts and fears. What about the prophets? Were they perfect? Did Jeremiah ever want to give up? Did Elijah ever want to give up? Did Moses ever uh, lose his meekness in frustration? You can go through all the prophets, and you can go through all the apostles, And you'll be thinking, well, it's not a very stable foundation. But when we come to Revelation, what do we find? We find the church in all her glory. And she's still built upon the foundation of the apostles. And their names are unashamedly inscribed in these foundations. 
You see, the church is not dependent upon the apostles, but upon the chief cornerstone himself. And he is the one who has preserved the church in spite of her weaknesses, in spite of her blemishes, in spite of her folly. He has preserved the church right to the end. But then the church is here seen as triumphant. Before we come to chapter 21, we witness throughout the chapter after chapter the great struggle, the great battle between the forces of darkness and the kingdom of Christ. We hear of martyrs. We hear of opposition. We hear of deception. We see the mighty powers, the combined powers and forces of Satan's kingdom arrayed to destroy the man-child when he's born. Then in anger and rage going against the church and her witness throughout generation after generation. And yet all that opposition, however fierce it is, has not been able to destroy Christ's church. Because he is the head of the body and his people are the members of that body. And to destroy the body, the enemies will have to destroy the head. Here we see at the end the mighty triumph The dragon and the false prophet and the beast, they've been deceiving the nations, they've destroyed their multitudes, and yet they are cast into the lake of fire. And there will be no more curse, and there will be no more tears, there will be no more grief, there will be no more wars for the church now. Her day of warfare is over. She's now saved and she is now in the presence of her Lord presented in her holy perfection to him. In the psalm that we were singing, Psalm 46, those amazing words, how edifying, how encouraging, They truly are. God in the midst of her doth dwell. And John saw this. Where was Christ dwelling in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks? Now, he's enthroned, remember, because the focus has been in the throne all the way through. He's enthroned, as it were, in the midst of the candlesticks. He walks, yes, but he is also enthroned. He stands, yes, but he is also enthroned. He is made head over all things to his church. He's ruling everything and he's governing everything for the good of his church. Now you might find that hard sometimes to comprehend and you'll be thinking, well, so much that's happening is against the church. It's out to destroy the church. It's out to corrupt the church. These things that are happening are are happening to undermine the church. But we must never lose sight of what Paul said that he is made head over all things to the church. And he's ruling in every way, in every place, at every time, directing everything toward the glorious redemption and glorification of his church. And this is what we're brought to here, <clears throat> the triumph of the church. God in the midst of her. At any time, 
You could go through all the various incidents that are recorded, all the various scenarios that are presented to us in this book. The church embattled the church at war with the forces of darkness. And yet at any point, anywhere, she's able to sing, God is our refuge and our strength in streets of present deed. Why? Because God in the midst of her doth dwell. Wherever you find the seven golden candlesticks, Christ is there upholding his cause and causing it to triumph. And here in the chapter 22, we come to the city with all its beauty, with all its wealth, with all its honor, with all its glory. And it is triumphant. All her enemies have been vanquished. Christ has been faithful and true to his church. But then... This is the church united with Christ now, united in Christ, united by Christ, and now united with Christ. We're told in the chapter 21 what John heard in verse 3. I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. And he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God had dwelt with his people in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple. He had filled the house with his glory. It's very interesting that when the captives returned from Babylon, and they rebuilt the city of Jerusalem, There is no record of the glory of God filling the house. That is recorded regarding the setting up of the tabernacle. And that is recorded on the day when Solomon dedicated the temple to the Lord. But there is no record regarding the second temple that the glory of the Lord filled the house. Because in reality, and that's what we must ever remember, although the temple was so glorious and grand in the days of the Savior, to such an extent that the disciples even asked the Lord, Behold, look at it, how great it is, and what did Jesus say? Not a stone would be left one upon another, it would be all taken down. And he said, destroy this temple. And in three days I will build it again. And he spake of the temple of his body. And yet at the same time, he was identifying himself with the second temple, which Herod had greatly extended. What in reality he was saying is this, I am the glory in the midst. I am the temple. I am the glory filling the temple. And here in this book of the Revelation, uh, John tells us, verse 22 of chapter 21, I saw no temple therein. In this city, no temple. It's as though the whole city is a temple. The glory fills the whole city. Every part of it. There's no veiled uh, holy of holies now. God is here in the midst of his people and they see his face. The Old Testament, they didn't see the face of God because he dwelt in the darkness of the holy of holies behind the veil. But here is God dwelling among his people and so close and so intimate is the relation between them 
they actually see his face. We cannot possibly describe or even begin to comprehend what that really means and will mean in the experience of the redeemed people of God. But they shall see his face. There be no temple there. There be no candlestick there. Nothing of the furnishings of either the tabernacle or the temple. Because, as John writes, I saw no temple therein for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Now, all these symbols sometimes is very difficult to connect them all into perfection. But the picture is clear. Christ, in his glory, fills this city. The Lamb in the midst is the glory. And the kings come with their glory and cast it down at his feet. Now, if you look with me at Ephesians chapter uh, 3, you will see a remarkable statement made by the apostle, and he's writing to these Gentile believers. And this is what Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave, is a revelation of Christ united with his church, his bride, and the bride united with him. But what is that bride, or who does this bride consist of? Ephesians chapter 3, Paul is speaking of his ministry to the Gentiles. And in verse 3 of Ephesians 3, Paul writes, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote a four and few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. My knowledge in the mystery of Christ. And then now he expresses his knowledge, what he knows. Which... Verse 5, in other ages, was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. In other words, what Paul is saying, I have clearer knowledge now on this matter than they did in the past. And what is this Knowledge that he has, that the Gentiles, verse 6, shall be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. What's he saying? He's telling these Ephesian believers, these Gentile believers, that they are fellow heirs and of the same body. There's only one body. There's only one church, one body. And it is made up of Jews and Gentiles, those who come in through the suffering Christ into the body of Christ into the church. Only one church. Now, where did it begin? Well, we read, Stephen tells us of the church in the wilderness. The church was in the Old Testament. It didn't begin in the New Testament. The church was there in the Old Testament. And it consisted only of Jewish or Hebrew Believers, and those who became proselytes, if they came from the Gentile communities, they became proselytes, and they were part of the 
church. Now what does Paul tell these Ephesians? The Gentiles should be fellow heirs. They're all on equal footing. The Jew doesn't have any advantage now over the Gentile. They are one in Christ and they are of the same body. Only one body. Only one church. But now it is extended to embrace the Gentiles so that they become one in Christ and they are partakers of the promise. What promise? The covenant promise. The promise that was made to Abraham way back. The promise that was made at the very beginning in Genesis 3. But particularly the promise to Abraham. The covenant promise that the nations, the Gentiles, would be blessed through the promised seed, none other than Christ himself. And here's Paul saying, this is what Christ has done. He has gathered his people, given to him in eternity past, and he has brought them all together into one body. And the church now consists of Jews and Gentiles, as in Revelation. We've noted it more than once. Where are they from? Who are these redeemed, dressed in white robes? They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. But where are they from? Out of every tribe, and every tongue, and every kindred. And every nation. What a glorious sight then we have at the end of this book. The redeemed of all ages. Gathered from north, south, east and west. All brought in by Christ. Not by works. But all brought in through the pearl of great price himself through his sufferings, to partake of these blessings. But then the church is sanctified and made holy. And here we have the church in all her glorious perfection. There won't be a sigh, there won't be a tear, there won't be a groan, there will be no more curse. Curse is gone forever. Not only the curse that descended upon the uh, earth and upon the vegetation, causing Adam to go down to his grave in sorrow. No more curse, but then no more curse for Christ either. He is born the curse that was due to his people, and it has passed. And now he sees the travail of his soul, who for the joy that was set before him, all the joy that is here seen in these final chapters, for the joy that was set before him, for this day, for this great occasion, he endured the cross and he despised the shame because he saw this glorious day when he would embrace his church. And here when we come to the end, of course, of the book, history hasn't been finalized yet. Yes, things are going to come to pass. But this is what John is Given this is what God, the revelation God gives of his son, of Christ. So that John knows this is what he's doing, this is what he's going to do. This is Christ unfolded or revealed or unveiled by God himself so that John can write to the churches and tell them 
Your day of triumph is still ahead. Your day of victory, your day of glory. And Christ's glorious day of marriage is yet ahead, but it's going to happen. And then you can see at the end the final words that we have from Christ the Savior himself. As we come to the very end of the canon of Scripture, the word that was made flesh speaks. And these are his final words to the church. The final words that we have from the head of the church himself. Verse 16 of chapter 22. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you (coughs) these things in the churches. What is Christ saying to the churches? I want you to know these things. I want you to believe these things. I want you to look by faith for these events. I want you to be living as though you believe this glory lies before you as it is here revealed in this book. And then... In verse 16, he also says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright and the morning star. And then you will see, as time does not permit us to go into the invitations from the Christ of God to come and drink of the water of life freely that's flowing out from the throne. But it ends, this book ends with an amazing word and statement. What's the final word of this book? The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all until this happens. Grace be with you. Grace will uphold you. Grace will uphold the church. Grace will enable the church to triumph. Grace will bring the church in its completeness to Christ, and Christ will embrace in his grace that redeemed church. Grace unto you. How amazing. When we begin a Genesis, And we begin with the fall and the curse. And here when we come to the end, we close with grace. What an amazing book the Bible is. What an amazing book the Revelation is. Closing with grace, the benediction of the head of the church. And then one final word, Amen. Now, I suppose we imagine we know the significance and the meaning of that word. Back in the book of Numbers, we have the first Amen in Scripture, chapter 5, and it gives us some idea as to its real significance. Here is the woman brought to the priest, accused of adultery. And there the priest goes through certain rituals to discover whether she's guilty or innocent. And in, for the sake of time, verse 22 of number 6, this water that causeth the curse shall go into thy bowels to make <coughs> thy belly to swell and thy thigh to rot. And the woman shall say, Amen, amen. What's she saying? So be it. So let it be. I agree. I approve. I agree. That's what it means. But it has even a greater significance. And remember what we're doing when we're looking at Revelation. The revelation which God gave. 
of Jesus Christ. And we find in the book of the (coughs) Revelation, chapter 3, one of the messages to one of the seven churches, verse 14. Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things saith the Amen. The Amen. Not just Amen. The Amen. This is a description of Christ himself. And yet, very little attention is ever given to it. We think of Christ in various ways. But do we ever think of him as the Amen? When we go to Matthew chapter 6, we have in the course of the Sermon on the Mount, the Savior teaching us how we're to pray. And in chapter 6 of Matthew, we read, for the sake of time, verse 13, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, when we pray, don't we again and again use the expression for Christ's sake? We want our prayers answered for Christ's sake. We don't feel we have any worthiness in ourselves, but he has it. And for Christ's sake, answer. For his worthiness, answer. That's really what the Amen is all about. Amen. I wonder how many thousands, millions of amens have been uttered throughout history, even perhaps by ourselves. We think it's the thing to do, yet we don't think, what what am I saying? What, What do I mean? Amen. It's as though the prayer closes with Christ. The mind that is presented petitions, the lips that have cried to God, that have brought the needs and the wants, the prayer closes with Christ, the Amen. It's as though the soul is saying, for the Amen's sake, If you go to the prophecy of Isaiah, it's very interesting, and with this we close. In Isaiah chapter 65, you have (coughs) there, verse 16, promise, a gospel promise. Isaiah 65, verse 16 that he who blesseth himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth, and he that sweareth in the earth shall swear by the God of truth, because the former troubles are forgotten, and because they are hid from thine eyes. Now you look there, twice he sweareth, he shall bless himself in the God of truth. And in the Hebrew, that word truth is actually amen. He shall bless himself in Amen. He shall bless himself in Christ the Amen. He shall uh, swear by the God of Amen. How important it is then to know. You will hear people say, you go to many Pentecostal circles and so on, Lots of amens. One wonders, do they understand what they're saying? Or are they taking God's name in vain? Amen. The book closes with Christ. 
We begin the canon of Scripture in Genesis with the first Adam who falls. We end the canon of Scripture with the last Adam, the second Adam, full of grace and full of truth. And everything closes with the Alpha and the Omega. The Amen. The churches. Amen. God's Amen. What a wonderful conclusion. But have we seen Christ? Have we heard Christ? Have we come to know him better? Through what God has revealed and unveiled of the Savior of the church. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. Most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that thou hast not left us in ignorance and in darkness, but thou hast revealed thy beloved Son as the Savior of his people. And we rejoice that he is the final word in all things. He is the Amen, the final word of all that has ever stated and has ever been said. The word made flesh, dwelling among his people. There, Amen, and God's Amen. Bless thy word to us. Open our eyes to see the Savior. Pardon us, accept us for Jesus Christ's sake, in whose name we ask it. Amen.